Well, in 1996, PepsiCo Incorporated launched a campaign in which they made a promise. Well, kinda. Uh, it was a marketing campaign, and uh, the idea was that for every can of Pepsi that you bought, you would get points, and you could um, build up your points, and then there was a catalog of prizes, and you could redeem those points for different prizes. And so uh, they launched this commercial to explain the program to people, and the commercial was this high school boy who was getting ready for school, and uh, he put on a Pepsi t-shirt, and then at the bottom of the screen it would say how many points he had got to buy that t-shirt, and it was, you know, 75 points for a t-shirt, and then he would put on a leather jacket, 1,450 points for a leather jacket, then he would put on a pair of sunglasses, and it would say 175 points for a pair of shades. And then the funny part of the commercial is that he arrives at school in a fighter jet. Uh, in a, to be exact, it was the AV-8 Harrier II jet, which is special because it's a, a jet that can take off and land vertically, like a helicopter. And so he, he lands in the school quad and, you know, the teacher's tie is blowing and all the papers are blowing and everyone looks out the window and here he comes with his leather jacket and his Pepsi shirt and this, and he gets out of his jet and he says, sure beats taking the bus. And, uh, and at the bottom of the screen, it says there, fighter jet, seven million points. And it's a, it's a great concept and everybody understood now how the program worked. Um, but what happened next is both funny and sad. 21-year-old a business student by the name of John Leonard wanted that jet. And so he decided to take Pepsi at their word. And he figured seven million points for a jet, that's, that's a good price. A Harrier jet was going for $32 million at the time. But the catalog said that you could buy redeemable points for 10 cents per point. And there was, there was no disclaimer in those days. That's why we have all these disclaimers these days in the fine print. It's because of what happened. And uh, so he found, he did the math and figured that, okay, he could buy this $32 million fighter jet for $700,000 worth of Pepsi points. And so he found five investors to back up the scheme. And he had this loan of $700,000. This was after he actually tried to buy all the Pepsi he needed and store it in warehouses and figure that math. It was a very tight margin. But then when he read that you could just buy the points, he said, well, let's do that. So he sent Pepsi a check for $700,000, buying 7 million points, and said, Pepsi, where's my jet? And of course, Pepsi thought this was hilarious and wrote back saying, you know, obviously, you're not going to get a jet, but, you know, here's some Pepsis for your creativity. Uh, he didn't think it was funny. They said, obviously, the commercial was a joke. Well, it wasn't a joke to John Leonard. So he sued PepsiCo. He sued them for breach of contract and false advertising. And Pepsi tried to make the point in the court case that, well, they didn't even have the power to fulfill that. They, didn't, they weren't able to get a fighter jet from the government. The government owned all the fighter jets. And... Leonard and his attorney basically said, that's not our problem. You made a promise. You need to find a way to get this guy his jet. And so they made an offer to him saying, well, look, obviously we can't give you the jet. We don't, 
We don't own any fighter jets. We can't get them from the government. But here's $50,000. Now, what would you do at that point? Your 21-year-old student, you've just been offered $50,000 in cash. John Leonard declined. He said, I don't want the money. I want the jet. And so this went to court, and it dragged on for a little bit. But in August 1999, Judge Kimber Wood ruled in favor of Pepsi. And this was her ruling. She said, quote, No objective person could reasonably have concluded that the commercial actually offered consumers a Harrier jet. Unquote. She was saying, obviously, this has got to go in favor of Pepsi because no objective person could reasonably have concluded that Pepsi was actually offering a Harrier jet. Even though that's what they said they were offering, she said a reasonable person would realize, basically, it's too good to be true, so it's not true. Now, personally, I kind of wish that Leonard had got the jet, just because that would have made a really cool story. But I agree with the judge. You know, there's certain promises that are thrown out there that are just too good to be true, and a reasonable person understands that and isn't going to try to claim it and capitalize on it. But think about this. That logic is the exact same logic that unbelievers use on Christians. They say, well, you read in this old book that there's a promise of an eternal inheritance, eternal life, that you'll live in heaven forever in bliss. That is a promise that is simply too good to be true. Especially because you claim that it's all for free. All paid for by someone else. All you have to do is believe and you get this heaven for eternity. That is too good to be true. No objective person can reasonably conclude that the Bible actually offers Christians an eternal inheritance. Well, today we are going to examine a promise in Scripture that is too good to be true. And yet it depends on the character of God what we do with that. So turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. It all depends on if God can keep a promise or if he was only joking. Now, we've been seeing as we've been going through this, you know, at a snail's pace through verse uh, 1 and 2, four foundation stones of salvation that Peter kind of feeds us as we walk into his uh, house. He, no small talk, here's the stake. Very meaty doctrines. And we, as we've said, the reason he gives us this, this meaty doctrine to consume up front is because he, the whole case that he builds is based on their understanding of the security of their salvation. These are people that had been scattered, elect exiles, uh, kicked out of their homes and their jobs and are all over um, Asia Minor in these various cities. This letter is going to be passed around to them. And, and he's basically telling them, don't panic. Everything's fine. Keep calm and carry on. Do the next right thing. Live the Christian life. But they might be feeling, why is this happening to us? What have we done wrong? And so he starts off with these foundation stones. You are saved. God is aware of what's going on. He is in control. And now for the rest of the book, I'm going to tell you how to live out that Christian life. And that's sort of where we find ourselves in this greeting. We looked at the plan of salvation, the foreknowledge of God. We looked at the path of salvation, the, that salvation is, has a progressive element of sanctification, becoming more like Christ. We looked at the purpose of salvation, which is you were saved to be obedient to Jesus Christ, according to the Bible. That's his love language. 
And we looked at the promise of salvation, that you get the salvation because you're part of the new covenant and you have been sprinkled by his blood. This, this blood of Christ has been applied to you. So that's where we find ourselves. And this morning we're going to look at three sources of hope to carry you through trials. Well, no, we're not actually going to do that. We're going to look at the first one this morning. But we will get to, eventually, three sources of hope to carry you through trials. This week, we're going to look at your eternal life. That's a source of hope, your eternal life. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at your eternal inheritance that comes with that eternal life and your eternal security. So these are sources of hope that we have. So let me read for you from... Well, let's just take it from, where are we? Verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So that's our next little section we're going to be looking at. And the first source of hope that we see there is our eternal life and then our inheritance and our security. Now, Peter calls our eternal life a living hope. This is what you have been born again to. This is what you are being saved to, a living hope. That's what your eternal life is. It is a hope that is alive and flourishing. It's not a stagnant pool of hope in the desert of life. It is a stream of hope that is life-giving and nourishing that you can draw from. And hope is one of the most powerful tools that we have to endure trials. Hope is what gets you through. Hope is knowing that it's all going to be worth it in the end. And anyone can endure anything if they know it'll be worth it in the end. That's why people run marathons. It's not fun. It's fun to finish a marathon. Am I right? This is why people go to med school. Because in the end you get to be a doctor. It's not fun while you're going through it. It's not meant to be. This is why people have children, right? Anyone think the pregnancy is the fun part? No, and yet people keep having them. It's because you know that it's worth it in the end, usually. Um, Well, here we have Peter offering these elect exiles hope. They've lost their jobs. They've lost their homes. They're scattered abroad, and he says, This is a trial you're going through, but you can endure it because there's hope. It's going to be worth it in the end. In the end. And so he says, blessed be God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's about to launch into this blessing of God and give us reasons to bless God, reasons to be thankful in our trial. And in this blessing, we're going to get today's outline, which is we're going to see three confidences that we have that our hope is real. Three confidences that the the promise of our eternal life is sure. Three promises. They're coming. Number one is that it stems from his mercy. That's the first one we're going to see. The three confidences that you know that your eternal life is definitely there, that it's not too good to be true, that the promise was made and you're actually going to get your jet. The first one is 
This confidence comes that it stems from God's mercy, not your works or your worthiness. Look at verse 3 again. According to his great mercy. So everything that's about to follow from this is according to his great mercy. God is merciful. That's our good news. This is very elementary if you're a Christian. God is merciful, yeah. It's very important for you to realize what that means, though. Your eternal life is sure you're going to get it. Not because you earned enough points to redeem it, but because of the character of God. Mercy is an attribute of God. It's like Pepsi is a company that's there for profit. Pepsi exists to make profit. If you are a shareholder, you just want the company to keep making more money. So when Pepsi offers you sunglasses or a leather jacket or a t-shirt or a fighter jet, it's not because they care about you. They don't care about you. They want you to buy their product. That's what they care about. The only thing they care about is your beverage choice. And so they will give you these rewards to get you to buy more, to make more money. And therefore, we are not surprised when we try to claim a fighter jet that's going to cost them money for them to fight it and say, no, we're, that's not what we meant. We were only joking. That doesn't surprise us. But with God, he is not an entity that exists for profit. He cares about you. Everything that he did in the plan of redemption was for his glory because of his love for you. And it's because of his attribute of mercy. An attribute of mercy means that he, part of who God is, part of what makes him God is that he is predisposed to forgive people who don't deserve it. That's such good news. That we are saved according to his great mercy. When you go out into the sun, you get warm. You don't get warm in the sun because you deserve it. You get warm in the sun because that's what the sun does. It warms things. When you walk into the warmth of God's mercy, it's not because you deserve his mercy. It's because that's who he is. That's what he does. He loves to forgive. And he will forgive anyone of anything if they ask him. All you have to do is walk into that sunlight to be warmed by it. All you have to do is walk into the mercy of God and you will be saved according to his great mercy. It's his attribute. It's who he is. Psalm 103 verse 8 says, Yahweh is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That's who he is, Psalm 103 verse 8 says. He is merciful. Psalm 119 says in verse 156, Great is your mercy, O Yahweh. Great is your mercy. Give me life according to your rules. Mercy is such a great concept. You know, when my, when my kids were very little, um, we... We were trying to teach them the concept, uh, you know, when you're, the younger your kids are, the more you're just teaching them to obey. You're just teaching them, if they do something wrong, there's a consequence. But we had read in a parenting book that we thought this was a good idea, was to teach them the concept of mercy as well. So every once in a while, 
if they admit that they deserve the discipline that's coming, then we would give them mercy. And we would say, do you agree that you need the, the spanking? Yes, I agree. You know what you did wrong? Yes. Well, this time you're not going to get it. This is called mercy. And so we were programming this into them so that later on in life they could go to the Lord for mercy and understand what it is. But it backfired a little bit. Because what would happen is, if you start teaching this concept a little young, you know, this one time we're in the grocery store, and I'm not going to name any names because then I have to pay them $5. But um, one of the kids, being very young, maybe three and a half-ish, was uh, not obeying. And so I leaned down, took them by the hand, and said, when we get home, you're going to get a spanking for this. And they started saying, mercy, Dad, mercy, mercy, mercy. <laughs> and everyone in the store was looking at me, holding my kids, saying, mercy. So, <laughs> but at least they understood what it meant, right? Okay, well, the, the, the confidence we have is that God is merciful, and you can cry out for mercy, and he will give you mercy. So that's the first confidence, that it stems from him and his mercy. Our second confidence comes from the fact that our salvation is started by his action. It's not initiated by you. It's not caused by you. It's caused by him. The verse says again, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So our salvation is this living hope. And he caused us. He caused us to be born again. We didn't birth ourselves. So it's not initiated by you. That should give you confidence because if he initiated it, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. If he didn't want you to be saved, he wouldn't have started saving you. It's another way kind of, of thinking that. So the fact that he caused you to be born again means that he's taking the responsibility for you. Now this term born again, very important term, very misunderstood. Um, in the 60s and 70s, there was a revival movement in the United States where the, uh, you know, uh, Billy Graham, Greg Laurie, those revivalists, and they were preaching, you must be born again. And this was kind of a new terminology to a lot of people, and so they, uh, this misunderstanding brewed so that people started thinking that there's normal Christianity, and then there's like fanatic Christians and they're the born-again Christians. Um, I, you know, if you, if you even read about uh, political history, you get to the point where George Bush Sr. is running for president, and there was a question, there was always a question about candidates in those days um, if they were Christians, if they believed in Jesus Christ. And candidates in those days needed to believe in Jesus Christ in order to get the vote. Not so much anymore. Um, but George Bush Sr., there was this whole big problem because somebody asked him for his testimony and he spoke about when he was in the war and he was in the, the water and he knew that he didn't have any hope and so he kind of cried out to God and he ended up being rescued and that was his like moment of salvation. And, and journalists were not happy with this because he didn't use the phrase born again. So George Bush Sr. was claiming to be a Christian but he was not a born again Christian. You know, Methodists didn't use that kind of terminology as much and I think he was Methodist but there's a one encyclopedia, an online encyclopedia says this, in recent history, born again is a term that has been associated with evangelical renewal since the late 1960s, first in the United States and then later around the world. It came to refer to an intense conversion experience and was used as a term to identify devout believers, unquote. 
So the online encyclopedia describes born again as a term used to describe devout believers who have had an intense conversion experience. As if there's any other kind. As if you can be a Christian that kind of had like a namby-pamby conversion that you barely remember, and you just were born that way. I've just always been a Christian, and uh, I'm not particularly devout. I mean, I show up on three Sundays out of four. I throw in my tithe and offering, and boom, you know, Christmas, Easter, the CEOs, you know, I show up for the big ones. Um, but I'm not like one of those fanatic born-again Christians that goes to like two services on a Sunday. I mean, what are we talking about here if, if there's different types of Christians? The term was not invented by the U.S. It was invented by the Bible. Peter uses it here. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Peter learned it from, from Jesus. In John 3, verse 3, very famous passage where Jesus is talking to a Pharisee who thought that he was fine with God, a Jewish leader, Nicodemus. In John 3, verse 3, he says, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There are no people who go to heaven who have not been born again. Only the born-againers go to, go to heaven. In other words, only real Christians go to heaven. So you might have two classes, the non-real Christians and the real ones. People who call themselves Christians who are unbelievers and go to church and show up for Christmas and Easter and do their thing. Unbelievers who call themselves Christians. And then believers who are actually going to heaven. And those who have been born again. Jesus went on to say, in verse 4, Nicodemus says to him, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And he's speaking metaphorically. He's like saying, this is the whole system I know. This is how I live. How can I now suddenly start a whole new way of thinking? And Jesus just says, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You have to have your two births. You have to be born and then you have to be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Everyone's born of the flesh. Everyone's just flesh. But... That which is born of the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, is Spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born with the Spirit. Jesus is saying, you, you can't see the second birth. You can see the effects of the second birth. You can't see the wind, but you can see the trees move. That's what it's like with the Spirit. You can see a person suddenly change, become a new creature with new desires that lead to new behaviors, and you know something has happened there. That's being born again. Now, what do you do to make the wind blow on you? Nothing. You can't, the wind blows where the wind blows, Jesus says. What do you do to get born? Well, what did you do to get born the first time? Nothing. Being born is a passive exercise. It happens to you. You don't get a choice. Have you ever said that to your mom in a moment of rage when you were a kid? I didn't ask to be born. Okay, but that ship has now sailed. So yes, now you still have to go do your chores. Um, you didn't ask to be born. You had nothing to do with it. You just showed up. It's the same with the second birth. It's the same with being born again. You don't birth yourself spiritually. God needs to do it. But Peter says this is a good thing because now you can draw confidence because if you are born again, you know it's because he caused you to be born again to a living hope. So salvation isn't what you do, it's who you are. Salvation isn't what you do, 
Salvation is who you are, and you can't change that. You can change what you do. You can change your behavior, behavior modification, but you can't change who you are. That's up to God. God can change who you are. He can cause you to be born again. That's what those verses mean, you know, Isaiah, can a leopard change his spots? No. Can an Ethiopian change his skin? No. The point there is, there is a nature you're born with, and there's some things you can't change. But God can change you. So you might ask, well, what can I do to be saved? And the answer is nothing. You can't do anything to be saved. You weren't able to do anything to be born either. It's God's power that causes us to be born again. Verse 3 says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Do you see your role in there? Yeah, me neither. There's, your role's not in there. So your real question should be, how do I know if I'm born again? And the answer is, how do you know you were born the first time? If I go to you and I say, how do you know you were born? What's your answer? I mean, I'm here. I, I'm alive. I must have been born if I am alive. How do you know you were born again, spiritually, from above? Well, you are alive, spiritually. So the way you know if you're born again is you look at your life and you say, am I a new creature? from what I was? Is my life different than what it was before I knew Christ? You see, you have a heart of stone. Ezekiel 36 says that I will take that out. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. So Ephesians 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive. So there's lots of, throughout the Bible, you'll see this. There's lots of different metaphors in that that talk about you were one way, now you're another way. And the one way was bad, and the, the new way is good. It's different. Such were some of you. The whole list of things that send you to hell, such were some of you, 1 Corinthians 6. So this is used all over the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So that's how you know if you're alive or not, spiritually speaking. Do you have a new life? Did that ever happen to you? Did you ever have a, a point in your life where you were behaving a certain way, thinking a certain way, responding a certain way, you had certain priorities and, and certain desires, and then there was a change where you realized your sinfulness and you realized your need for a savior and you cried out to him and you asked him for his mercy and he gave you his mercy and maybe you did that many times and nothing changed, but at one point, something changes and now you're living for Christ. And, and you desire to read his word and you desire to pray to him and you desire to be with God's people and you desire to sing to him and you desire to, to uh, contribute out of your resources and your time and your finances for, for something you're not gonna get anything back from, but for the Lord. And you, and you just, you have new priorities. And you have new desires. And you have new goals. And you have new attitudes. And you have new responses when people sin against you. That's called having a new life. And that only happens when you've been born again. 
there's another confidence that we have that our eternal life is sure. So we saw it's, it stems from his mercy. That's why we know it's sure, not from yourself. It's started by his action. You can't do anything about it. So your confidence is in how powerful God is, not you. And thirdly, finally, the third confidence is that uh, our eternal life is sure because it is secured in the past. It's not a matter of something that still has to happen or is happening. It was secured in the past through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says that in in verse 3. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So how did he cause us to be born again? Through the resurrection. It's kind of a strange thing to say, isn't it? He caused us to be born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, it was the... This is why the resurrection is being mentioned here, not the cross. Because you keep thinking, isn't it the cross? Well, think about this. The person and work of Jesus Christ, your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ is what applies his blood to you. That's what we learned last week, the sprinkling of his blood. So the work of Jesus Christ is the life that he spends in perfect righteousness, never sinning against God, so that he can be the sinless lamb of God. And his suffering and death on the cross on your behalf, bearing the wrath of God. And that's sin bearing. That's the work. It must lead to a death, because the wages of sin is death. It must be on a cross, because the cursed is the man who's hanging on a tree. And so he's fulfilling all of these prophecies and all these requirements. That's the work of Christ. But if he died, and he wasn't able to conquer death... For himself, how would we have confidence that he could conquer death for us? Because now all of that's been done for us, but we're still going to die. So our hope isn't in escaping death in this life. Our hope is escaping eternal death so that we can have our eternal life. That's our living hope. How do we know he can do that? Otherwise, he's just a guy that claimed things. And I mean, he did some pretty impressive stuff. But if you predict that you're going to raise yourself from the dead and then you don't do it, that's a major part of the exam that you've left out. You know? No, no, no. He was able to conquer death. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the reason you can be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the track record that you pin your hope on. It would be like this. Imagine the reason you were collecting your Pepsi points is because you saw on the news that someone else had collected 7 million points and Pepsi had given them a jab. Now you know Pepsi is willing to keep that promise and that they weren't just only joking and it was meant to be taken literally. And you know that they are able to. They must have struck some deal with the, the government that they were able to get the jet. So the fact that you see this impossible, too good to be true thing actually happen to somebody means that you now have hope. Oh, I'm in. And I have assurance that they'll do the same thing for me. Now, it kind of went the other way with Pepsi because they didn't. Only joking. But with God, if Jesus went into the ground and he stayed there, all the prophecies about the resurrection, God's like, yeah, that part wasn't literal. Only joking. And then he says, but don't worry, I'm going to raise you from the dead someday. And you're like, yeah, right. You couldn't even raise Jesus from the dead. 
You see how important the resurrection is to our faith? The resurrection is what seals our faith. It's the reason we believe everything else we believe is because he was raised from the dead. It's the hardest thing to do. You know, water to wine, eh, child's play. Walking on water, you know. I mean, David Copperfield can fly. But raising yourself from the dead, never been done before. When you go to the gym, you know, you're deciding what weights to do your bicep curls, but you, they're all, it's always going to be less than your deadlift. Your deadlift is your heaviest weight. Whatever you can deadlift, that's the most that you can lift. Everything else, the bench and the snatch and everything, that's always lighter. All the miracles in Scripture are lighter than resurrection. If he can do resurrection, he can do anything else. If he can raise himself from the dead, he can raise you from the dead. That's easy. Raising you from the dead, that's just a clean and jerk or whatever. This is the heavy lifting, is the resurrection. So when he says that you are, you've been caused to be born again, God caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is a confidence of your salvation. You could say it this way. If you doubt the resurrection, you doubt your salvation. And, and you know, you, everybody comes to the Easter service, so you've heard a ton of resurrection sermons, and you're always like, yeah. He's risen, he's risen indeed, right? We're Baptists. But there's so many churches who don't teach that. They call themselves liberal as opposed to conservative. Liberal churches, theologically liberal churches, don't believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a literal bodily resurrection. They teach the Bible, but when they get to the miraculous part, they say, that's not meant to be taken literally. No objective person could reasonably conclude that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And so they say, the story of him being found and, you know, he was missing from the tomb and then he appeared to them and the whole Thomas, that's all a story, kind of like a parable that the disciples wrote to explain in a metaphorical sense that Jesus Christ is alive and will always be alive in his teachings and in our hearts and his ideals. And they're still alive today. Look, look, at, they'll say in the liberal church, look, we're all here today with a cross on the wall learning about Jesus. That shows that he's alive. You know, that sounds a lot like a $50,000 consolation prize. Where is my jet? The Bible promises an actual literal resurrection to me. I don't want my ideals and memories to survive for a couple of generations. I want to live again. And how do I have any confidence that I'm ever going to live again if this part that promises Jesus could live again wasn't actually true? And I didn't come up with that argument. Paul did. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. How can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still all in your sin. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. If the resurrection wasn't true, you're wasting your time being here on a Sunday. Every prayer you pray is a waste. Every dollar you spend on the kingdom is a waste. 
every sacrifice you've ever made is a waste. Your faith is futile. My preaching is in vain if there's no resurrection. And that's why Peter is telling us, telling the elect exiles and us, that we can all have a living hope because it stems from God's mercy, not us, that it is his nature to forgive, that it started by his action, not yours, and so he takes responsibility for all of it, and that it was secured in the past on Calvary and the tomb proven by and sealed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, whatever you're going through doesn't really matter. I mean, I know it feels like it matters, and I'm not trying to belittle some of the trials that some of you are going through and have gone through. This life is cursed. So you're going to lose loved ones, and you're going to lose your health, and you're going to lose your money, and you're going to lose friendships. And you're going to be in pain. You might lose your home. You might lose your job. You might lose all the people that love you. But that is still momentary light affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that only comes in heaven. Now, we got a couple more minutes. I just wanted to give to you what the Wednesday night crowd has already heard. So if you were here a couple Wednesdays ago when we did Luke 10, because we're preaching through Luke 10 at the moment, you can tune out. Um, the rest of you, we had a really, really great time in Luke 10 because this is the passage where Jesus sent out the 72 evangelists and they come back and they are rejoicing about something. They had a great mission trip that even the demons were subject to them. They were able to do miracles, they were able to do healings, and even the demons listened to them when they cast demons out of people and they come back for the missions report debrief, you know, with their PowerPoint and their, you know, white shoes. Missionaries always wear white shoes. And, and they're all standing there and, um, and then they, they say, and the best part is the demons even, they were subject to us and Jesus rejoices with them and says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. But then he says something really cryptic. He says in verse 20, Luke 10, 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's a very interesting recalibration of your source of joy and confidence. They are drawing their source of joy and confidence from circumstances going favorably in their ministry. And those are always fun. I mean, we're in a season of that right now in our church, right? The church is growing and, and, and people are pursuing the Lord and pursuing discipleship and we're seeing marriages healed and children being raised in the Lord. And we've, we've had, we've had Tons of baptisms. We've got another one coming up. See, does that mean we should be joyful? Well, yes, it's okay to be joyful in those things. But if that's what it takes to keep you joyful, it's very fragile. Because things go wrong. COVID could start again and we all watch this from Zoom. Can't do a baptism over Zoom. You know, and, and, and there can be trials and it can be difficulties. And so Jesus says, don't rejoice in your circumstances and your ministry going well. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So what he's telling them is, you are rejoicing in the lesser of two great blessings. And so this was the illustration we used on the Wednesday night. Imagine you are looking for a dress for your daughter's wedding, because um, you're the mother of the bride. 
and, um, and you are shopping all around, and there's a particular color she wants you to get, and you shop and you shop, and eventually you find it in the store, and it's the beautiful dress, and it's in your budget, and it fits perfectly, and you take it to the, the, the cashier, and as you're cashing out, an alarm goes off, and lights start flashing, and the manager comes down and says, you are this mall's 10th millionth customer. You win $10 million. And they have the big check, and the confetti falls, and they take a picture, and you're on the news, and you're like, this is a great day. And you're driving home, and you're completely dazed, and you get home, and your husband says, how was your day, honey? And you say, you will never believe what happened to me. I found the exact color and size of my dress today. It was a great day. See, Jesus is saying, you're rejoicing and that's good, but that is the lesser of two things that happened today. What you should have realized today is, I'm on Jesus' team, which means my name's written in heaven. That's the big news. Oh yeah, I got this dress. The big news every day of your life, the moment you wake up is, your names are written in heaven. Nothing else that goes wrong that day. The coffee on your shirt and the stubbed toe and the flat tire and the demotion at work. None of that can compare to the headline news, your names are written in heaven. And this is going to change your perspective. This is going to make you live completely differently. And you get all of this confidence because God started it. God did it. God wants this for you. He does this generously, not begrudgingly, and it's perfectly secure. And so everything else is momentary like affliction compared to an eternal weight of glory. And Paul even does this in Philippians 4 with the two ladies that are fighting all the time, Judea uh, and Syntyche, and he says, I, want, I urge you, ladies, to agree in the Lord and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. If, you, if you're fighting with someone and you both remember, well, you know, the thing is that both of our names are in the book of life, then suddenly whatever you're fighting about doesn't matter. There is no more pettiness in church. There's no more pettiness in your marriage. There's no more pettiness at work. Everything comes under the umbrella of, well, at least I'm going to heaven. No matter what happens. So, three sources of hope to carry you through trials, your eternal life. It stems from God's mercy, it's started by His will, and it's secured in the past resurrection. Now, there's still the eternal inheritance. So what is it that we get in eternal security? How sure is this? And for the full impact of that, you need to come back next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this amazing reminder that we have been born again to a living hope. I do pray for anyone here, Lord, who's not sure of their birth, their rebirth, because they look at their lives and they think, I, I don't have a heart that beats for the Lord Jesus Christ but I want one. I pray that your spirit would lead them to salvation, that the wind would blow them into your kingdom, that they would turn of their sins and repent from their wrongdoing, that they would beg for mercy, knowing that you promised to give them mercy and forgiveness, and that you would cause them to be born again, even today, to live a new life for Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.